0: Welcome to episode 156 of Control the Controllables. And today's guest has been the doubles partner of Bernard Tomic. He was the traveling coach and doubles partner of Nick Kyrgios and the regular practice buddy of Leighton Hewitt.
1: It's an emotional roller coaster for sure. But the memories and like the stories and on tour that are just. In everyday world back home, if I had of, you know, not played tennis, I would never have experienced it. Some of the experience I've had, I, I, you can't replace them for anything.
0: Matt Reed is the current number 81 in the world in doubles. He's been as high as number 60 in doubles and 183 in singles. Anyone that is around Australian tennis will know Matt well. He has an amazing ability to get on with people, He's always been in the Davis Cup squad. He's often given up his tennis career to help others. He's a really sound bloke. He's someone that you'd want to go for a beer down the pub with. And that's what it felt like. The chat felt like just sitting around in a pub, having a beer, talking about his career, talking about all the players that he's been around and helped I I was talking to him while he was in Miami, not that he was there to play the tournament himself, but he's there to represent, to look after all of the Aussies, and it comes through loud and clear, he's a strong Aussie, it's in his blood, and he'll do whatever it takes to help Australian tennis. Another fantastic guest to have on Control the Controllables, I'm going to pass you over to Matt Reed. So, Matt Reed, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm pumped to be here. It's, it's great to have you on. And the listeners won't see the view that I've just seen, but uh, the, the, you're not exactly selling the tough the tough tennis lifestyle right now As uh, in Miami staying at an ex-Premier League footballer's pad. So life seems to be pretty good for you right now.
1: Yeah, this week's pretty good. Um, I had a tough couple of weeks in Europe and was struggling a little bit in the cold. So I thought I'd have a few days off and come spend a few days in Miami and yeah, just li- live the good life <laughs> for a couple of days before I before I get back to reality.
0: And will you will you have a chance to compete next week? Because obviously the events the events coming to Miami next week after Indian Wells.
1: Unfortunately, I won't. I won't be playing, but I'll try and um, get down there and watch a few of the Aussie boys and the Brits, all, all my mates, try and watch them play. And, yeah, I'll be a bit of a hitting partner, I hope, if people want to hit and sacrifice their hits. But, yeah, I'll, I'll try and support as many Aussies as I can.
0: And I want to get into that, Matt, because it, – it, and maybe a little bit later, because that seems to be something that you you do incredibly well – you know they they see you seem to we often often appear in the players boxes you know i know that a lot of people think very highly of you but before we get into that whole story you did tell me you've just been to the gym now i I spoke to, uh, I don't know if he is a good friend, but I spoke to, to Lloyd before, Lloyd Glasspole. All the listeners will, will know Lloyd from the time he came on the podcast. I said to Lloyd, oh, have you got anything? You got anything for me on Reedy, you know? And he said, he said honestly, I've got nothing. All he does is eat, sleep and, and send messages to women. So, 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 so already already, you've proved him wrong by going to the gym today.
1: Yeah. Lloyd, you know, he's full of, he's full of crap or full of shit. Like, all he does is look at himself in the mirror. He doesn't even do anything. But no, I, I did. I, I actually I had a, had a big night last night and I thought I felt pretty average this morning. So I thought, oh, yeah, you know what? I probably should go get a little sweat. And I, I feel pretty good about myself right now. So I'm pretty pumped I could prove Lloyd wrong.
0: <laughs> well, there you go, Lloyd, and anyone else that doubts whether Matt Reed's taken taking this tennis thing seriously. <laughs> you know, (laughs) but before now, I I think there's some, there's some fun subjects to jump into, you know, and I think uh, I know our paths haven't massively crossed. I know we've been in touch about you maybe coming out to to the Academy and you're always welcome whenever in Europe, I can't promise. I'll give you the apartment you've got now, but it is very beautiful and sort of grande as well. Um, But where uh, it's a question I ask anyone that comes on, because this tennis thing, it does, it takes us around the world. It's, you know, th- there's a big sacrifice that comes with that as well, but it, it gets into our blood, this sport, you know, for, uh, for, for whatever reason. And, and I, and I think there's, there's thousands of us out there that, that are in the same boat and understand each other on that. So, but when, when did that start for you? When, when did the bug start? What was you? when did your tennis journey begin? Um, to be
1: honest, when I was younger, I played tennis and rugby union through all through high school, and I went to an all-boys rugby school. And my, like, to be fair, my passion was always rugby, but tennis was just something that could get me out of school. So, I, yeah, I played, and then, you know, you just see more individual success. Like, you know, you go to the Nationals, and you do well at the Nationals, and you can say you're the national champion. So I thought that was pretty cool. Well, you
0: can if you're and, good.
1: Yeah, well, to be fair, I, I, I never was the national champion, but I was, I was close, so I'd always be top couple or whatever. And then, yeah, you, I got to travel, play juniors. And I think the when I played the junior slams, that's when it really kicked in. I was like, geez, this is pretty good. This is pretty cool.
0: And in, and in terms of that, even just just to take you back, even before that, the common story, the common tennis story has been, have parents that are involved in tennis in some way or live live close by to a tennis court have a tennis club around the corner are are you going to tell me a different story or is this your story as well no i think it's a
1: little bit different because i think in australia like growing up um my, my dad played rugby professionally okay so I think he and my parents always wanted us to be active, you know, and so I played all sports growing up, like whether it was cricket, um, tennis, uh, rugby, touch football, just anything you can think of, swimming, athletics. Like I, not that I was great at them all, but like, I think you just go out there and give it a crack, have a go. But I guess I took a, a liking to tennis as a, as a young kid. And yeah, there was a, a little club down the road where, that I'd have, group lessons with about six guys and my sister, because I'm a twin, i got a twin sister. Oh, so okay. we'd all, we did everything together, whereas all sports and were a bit competitive with each other. And I think we just played all sports. And it's like a bit of a culture back home that you grow up giving everything a little bit of a crack.
0: And how far did you go with your rugby?
1: I played till I was 15. I still remember my last game. Um, I played at a, like obviously a school and it was the, the fifth, the last game of the season and I got tackled and I was quite, I was a really late developer. So I was really quite small. And one of the big favelas he fell and put his knee into my back and I ended up uh, with a, a punchy kidney. So yeah, it wasn't good. I was in hospital for a few days and I just thought, nah, too much, too much for me. I'm too small for this. Yeah. And then I ended up growing a little bit. So I probably, you know, and I, I quite that's kind of why I kind of enjoy the team environment sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're all, still my close mates. One, some of my closest mates are still, they still play rugby around the world. So it's pretty cool. I get touch base with them in Japan, London.
0: Absolutely, No, no, absolutely. I think, I think once you've got that team sport vibe, it's, it's, it, tennis is then quite hard. I think, I think I played football to a or soccer to a decent level and, uh, I just could never, and never, ever got my head around singles. I don't think like not true. Not truly, you know, just, yeah. just, just being there on the court. Now you got to 183 in the world in singles. So you, you've obviously, you obviously found a way to make it work when you're out there on the singles court.
1: Yeah. At times, like obviously you grow up in, in, on TV is always singles, So you, you want to be a singles player. And I, but I always, always kind of, did a bit better in doubles, but I, I found it hard. Like I found the whole loneliness on tour, especially being from Australia, always been away. I found it really difficult, even though you're always traveling with a bunch of guys, especially as a young kid. Like uh, when I say young, like 17, 18, you're always with a group. It's hard because like you, you've got to compete against your best, like technically your best friend who's on tour. And then you've got to hate them for like two hours. And then you never know what's going to happen. You just hope that you don't say something stupid or something, you know, like, yeah. and that's what I found really tough about singles. And then when you lose, you, you're by yourself, you know, yeah. you, you can go in some dark places and yeah. Or you do the opposite and you're, you're in a future in, you know, like the country somewhere and you lose with a bunch of, uh, and then you're like, Oh, where are we going tonight? You know? And then you just end up in that spiral. So it it can it can i found it really tough playing singles Yeah. thinking for myself I, i i found it really hard yeah
0: it always hits me and i've had i've had a few aussies on here now you know and obviously from traveling with with aussies and having a lot of mates over the years it always hits me from australia you kind of can't half measure it because if if you're gonna do it, and, and and that takes me back to like if you obviously you were you were a very good junior, so I guess it was probably age 15 when you started traveling the world. It's not like let's just dip my feet and go for a couple of weeks across the border to Italy and play a couple of events. It's going I'm 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 off I'm off for, I'm off for months, you know. And there's something very I think there's something quite tribal about that 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 also. I've always seen, I've always been a bit jealous of the Aussies. You know, I remember like at Ilkley or on the balcony, or always, you know, whatever it might be, that you always, always seem to hunt in packs, I guess, for that reason. So if you can take yourself back to being age 15, how was that first experience of your first big overseas travel?
1: Very tough. Very, very tough. It was just completely different. I still remember it really clearly when on those European, like grade four or fives. Um, maybe a couple of threes and you struggled because we went on the clay. Australia don't really have clay, So back then we didn't know what we we're doing, you know, like, so it was a lot of losing, but it was also, like you said, you you do get a bond with the players and like a couple of them, you know, you, you play through your whole career with and have a, have a great connection with great friendships. Like James Duckworth, he was one of the, my original great friends on tour. Um, we, we grew up playing since we were like nine years old together, like, you know, through the, the juniors. He was a couple of years younger, but he was always very good for his age. It was just so different, you know, you know to speak in different languages. Because in Australia, it's only really English, you know. Yeah. But then, yeah, tra- travelling, was, it was definitely tough. And um, But we did, we did and still do. I feel like have a very good bond between the players and we all get along and like all support each other, all, always facetiming each other and, yeah. I just feel like we've got a great connection with everyone.
0: And and it, juniors in general, are you an advocate of of the juniors, ITF juniors? Because you'll have you'll have some people and we'll have a lot of people listening to these podcasts too a tennis parent setting out on that journey with their child, you know, a, a teenager that's doing it, a coach who's maybe doing it for the first time. And obviously you'll have some people that go, oh, don't play juniors. It's, it's a load of rubbish. You should just go straight in and try and be a professional and whatever it might be. There's a lot of differing opinions. What's, what's your take on that? Is, is the junior, ITF junior route a, a good way for players to go?
1: Um, I personally think so. I don't think every, uh, it should be the be all end all. Like it should be more about developing as a player, you know, rather than worrying about winning the, the tournaments. But I do think it's a good way to see where you're at, to see who who's coming through. And you get to experience those grand slams. And that's something that it's a big, it's a, for me, it was a big motivational thing. Like, wow, like mm-hmm. how good is, how good is it walking around Wimbledon? Like I've been to it now 10 times or something, but, you still get goosebumps walking around the grounds. It's it's the most amazing place ever. And then to be to be able to play on the grass. Like if you play the juniors and you've got that um experience just going through there, it's I don't know, I feel like it was a big motivational thing to to play the juniors, junior slams. But I don't think winning the slams and like as a junior is a big deal. I think it's just great to like I wouldn't focus all my energies on winning rather uh, more about developing as a player, but also the opportunity to play those slams because if, if i look back all the the guys that were doing well i'm trying to think now like in my age like dimitrov rayonich a lot of them did go on to be pretty good players so and it's funny now you see them around the the tour and it's like you're like well oh, I remember that remember this remember that and you still reminisce on the, the good old junior days where you're all in the same hotels and with the, the, the you know a couple of the young like the girls as well and it's just it's fun. It's, it was a real fun time.
0: It's like an eighteen to thirty holiday, isn't it? Those, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. It was just so much fun. Like it, it, you did everything together, all of you got uh, all of us. It was. I I really enjoyed the juniors, but I was never like I was pretty good, but I, I did a lot better in the doubles juniors than the the singles. But I I loved it. Like I love being around everyone. It was fun.
0: For those listening, you, you, Matt Reid made the final. Of junior Wimbledon doubles 2008 so he's uh he's not quite giving himself the credit that he that he should and 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 I, and I think with that I I someone I've actually felt uh, I actually because I've been been up to Wimbledon a few times well a few times as a player but as a as a coach with I've been there with players or been around players that were good in the juniors. So if we take Liam Brody, he's a great example. You know, when you, when you were with Liam at Wimbledon uh, and I was there with him and Hiltz when he did well in the juniors, but then there watching him when he played Rowanich and also when he played Andy Murray in the first round. And as he's walking around the grounds, it's like dominic teams like hey Broads, how's things you know Kiri, you know curiosity. there arguing in the in the locker room as they did in the juniors nothing changes and then when i was there with lloyd Lloyd glasspole lloyd didn't really play juniors so when lloyd was there there was a difference of feeling of belonging and and that's yeah. another thing that i i i often think isn't valued high enough in our sport is that just sense of belonging in the environment and and i think if you do play juniors and you get to the point where you're competing in the grand slams ultimately you're competing with people that are going to be going on to win grand slams and and there's then more chance maybe that you feel like you can do that as well as silly as it sounds just by feeling comfortable in the locker room more than anything else i don't know if that's something you've experienced
1: yeah yeah 100 and that early on in your but when you didn't you know you looked so when i was 18 19 like even 18 when you were in the juniors and you were around those raffers rogers you you didn't belong but then as the years went on a lot of the guys that you transitioned and they did pretty well as well you do like when you see them there you gravitate towards them and like it's, it's a pretty cool to see like like bernie tomic was a great example for us like he he killed it so early and like it did it made you think well oh I was playing with him a couple of weeks ago like I, and pushed him tight, why can't I do it? And
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, that's the, and I think that's where, as a, a decent junior, you can kind of use that as a platform to push forward. Tennis, a lot of it's a belief thing. Yeah. So if you believe that you're going to do it, you never know. Like, yeah.
0: And, and as, you, as you then transitioned from juniors to, to the pros, you know, it's often a, a tough time because you go from being someone, I guess, your Wimbledon final, was it on court one?
1: No, it was, I was supposed to be on court one, but because the Roger Raffa match, that marathon, okay. they pushed whatever was on after that to court one, so we ended up playing all uh, courts. The one when you walk through, in, I think it's 13, one of those ones. Yes, yeah. the one, one, at, of the, those one at the
0: back with the big big stand at the back.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that one, and funnily enough, I actually served for the match. And Bernie, still to this day, I, I saw him last week, and he keeps he brings it up every time, and it drives me insane because it like it hurt me just as much as him. But he just gives it to me every time. Oh mate, we should have won Wimbledon. Oh, sorry mate, I
0: didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> so come on, tell us about that game. Tell us about that game when you when you guys were serving for the match. I don't have this doubles crap that you were. You know, half the time it's the guy at the net that cocks up. So what uh, what, what, what were you – What tell us about that game.
1: I'd love to say that I don't remember, but I remember every point because we were up 30-15. And I think 30-15 was the one where we played against the two Taiwan boys and they had won a couple of the slams yes. that year. Yeah, yeah. And I think he hit a return winner on my serve. Too good. The next one was – this one broke me and that was the, when I knew we were done. It was – I would slide a wide on the grass. You know, usually it slides away. And that Yang, he's hit as high as he could. Bernie's got the easiest overhead you've ever seen. Net cord over the dead leg cord, done. And I remember just, oh, no. And then the next one, return. I think I, I think it was that tight. I stayed back. I'd be volleying every point. stayed back. Tried to hit through the net player. Volley winner. Games. And then, yeah, the rest, six, I think it was 14-12 after that I was in my head, I was done, and it still still haunts me to this day. Because you go past the the, the winners, and I just can't believe that names aren't <laughs> up
0: there. Well, this is this is good therapy for you, maybe. You know, <laughs> it, you know getting, <laughs> getting it out there.
1: Yeah, well, I've told a few people that story, but there's a yeah, that one hurt more than a few few losses that I've had.
0: But you know what I love about that story as well, because the. The consequence of the of the, in my opinion, in my lifetime, I think that's the greatest ever tennis match that I've that yeah. I've ever seen, the Roger Rafa. And the consequence of the greatness of that match was that four poor juniors who were yeah. supposed to be going on court one got moved out of some NAF court that, that and how can you ever say a Wimbledon court's NAF, but out to yeah. out to a court where there was probably a, a few men and their dogs watching. Comparatively to what you would have, so I, that won't be written in the history books. I tell you, people won't people won't remember that one, Reedy. Really.
1: No, I know, I know. But that's that was one of the cool experiences, though. Is I never saw the final until like after. So I we do, we were just watching the scores the whole time. Like, oh my god, can you believe it? Like, um, what's like what's going on here? And then Rafa's up two sets love because there was so many rain delays. So we're like, oh my god, what's going on? And yeah. And then how he won that was incredible. The crowd, it was so loud. It was with, And like, yeah, and for our match, there were a couple Taipei supporters and that was it. There were no Aussies there. It was just pretty dead because of the weather was pretty average that year. But no, it was, yeah, it was unbelievable to be around on day four. I can always say I was there on day 14 or day 13. I can't remember exactly, but day 14 of that ridiculous final.
0: And as a, as a professional... You moved kind of pretty seamlessly, I guess, into the professional ranks. and And tell me about that professional journey the last few years. the The highs, the lows, the ups, the downs, the challenges, the the stories.
1: Yeah, it's a role. It's an emotional roller coaster for sure. But the memories and like the stories and on tour that are just like the people you meet. You just can't in everyday world back home. If I had a stopped and you know not played for played tennis i'll never have experienced it some of the experience i've had I, I, you can't replace them for anything but the highs and lows holy moly that's where where it's tough i if i sum my career up like with the highs and lows and it was one year i went into wimbledon i'd just just been dumped by the girlfriend so i was the head was all over the place i actually had lost every match on grass leading into it i was telling my coach I hate grass. I, I want to get out of here. So it was my first time playing Wimbledon Qualies. And I, I'm not going, let's go play a court Challenger. I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> looking back, but I thought, oh, let, and I was actually with James Duckworth and we were saying the same thing. We couldn't win a match and we went to Qualies. I ended up qualifying and first round, I think it was, I think it won 18-16 in the third against the Warmen and I, yeah, cramped. I, I did. I don't. I didn't pair well. Like obviously, I was like, oh, I'm gonna lose. So I. I didn't know I've had breakfast that morning. And then, what um, won my next round? I remember I was so sore. And usually, you get a day off in between the qualities, between the last round and the the from the second round to the last round, you get the day off. So I was like, oh, thank God, I can re- finally recover. Because the second round, I played a guy who I had a had his number. I just. You know, when you go onto the court, I'm like, oh, I, I, his name's Amir Weintraub. I used to try and practice with him all the time. See,
0: he was really, a great Israeli really guy.
1: Yeah, he just hated yeah. playing me. And I, I loved playing him.
0: Yeah.
1: Whereas a lot of guys have my number, but he's one guy who I just loved playing. And we always joked about it. It was the first time he had match points on me, but I ended up getting him. And then from then on, I just loved it. So I played him second round. So I was pretty confident, even though I was really sore. And then I had, had to play Tim Smichek, who I think he was the second seed in Collies he was top 100 at the time, but because of the rankings and the qualies cut, he had to pick qualies. And they said, nah, because it's supposed to rain. You're on tomorrow. First on. I finished night like at the dark. And I'm all second on. I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like, all right. Well, there goes my Wimbledon last round. That's pretty good. And I was pretty stoked with it. And I tried, tried to look at the lucky loser list. Like, oh, I wonder what lucky loser I'll be. And I still remember it clearly, that whole match. Because the first set and a half, I didn't win a point on his serve till maybe six five in the second set, and then I just got lucky, like complete ass and broke him. And I remember thinking clearly to myself, "I have been completely outplayed, yet it's a set all. How's this possible?" And anyway, from then on, I ended up going through and qualifying. And I remember that was like my as a player, I think that's the highest high I've had. Yeah, I just I went from. Getting dumped a couple of weeks before to not even I didn't even know like I, I remember just thinking anything could happen right now and I could not care less I as soon as I qualified I, I remember I went out with I had some school friends rugby friends that were over in London and I went out with them for for a couple nights just celebrating because I had a few few days off before I played I was just over the moon and then it went from that to the next year where I thought oh, I've got a pretty good draw I can't wait to qualify again I thought I had a great draw to qualify, and I was playing, and it was, I was—I lost, the – I couldn't breathe. I remember I—I <laughs> I had Leighton, Tony Roach, uh, a few other guys, but all the main draw players. Because that's one thing good thing about the Aussies is, while the Follies are on at Roehampton, all the main draw players come watch you play Follies and it's a, its unbelievable. It's the best feeling that like you've got them all lined up. <laughs> I couldn't breathe. I was trying to rip my shirt because I'm like, oh, I cannot breathe. I'm so nervous. And I ended up. I got to a second set tiebreak. I think he served for the match, and I was like, "Oh, I got it back." And I was playing with a guy named Jermaine, Jermaine Giganon, who's now Goffin's coach. And fireball on the tiebreak. He served it wide. He hit it back behind me, and I've slipped over and torn the ligaments of my ankle. And I just remember I tried playing on, you know, like, but I couldn't move. I was serving underhand. I ended up losing the set, obviously, because I served underhand. It's like nine-seven tiebreak, and I remember. Getting back to the apartment for three days, I was just like, so I couldn't move. I couldn't, I promised, I was actually had a girlfriend at the time. I promised her I'd go on holidays, but I couldn't because I had a torn ligament in my ankle. The doctors wouldn't let me travel. And I just went the year before, think sit, feeling the ultimate high of playing Wimbledon to the ultimate low of, I can't even go past the courts because I was like, oh, I felt sick. I was like, that's that was that to me hurt me the most, that loss more than anything. They're the losses that. You know, if people say, what are the highs and lows? I always think of that high of playing Wimbledon for the first time, singles, and only time ever playing singles, to the ultimate low of the next year, bowing, like getting taken away from you. Not that I was going to win, but like, and then having an injury as well. And especially when I saw, like, I saw the draw and I thought, oh, I've followed for sure. That's the only time I've ever said that to myself. Like, oh, I was so confident coming in. Oh, well
0: it's it's a great story for you to share really because i think sorry to turn my to- my coach's cap on a little bit here but it's on my sports psychology cap on but it's it it i'm a massive believer around expectation and, yeah. and 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 the management of expectation and look i've i've followed when i follow tennis i'm i'm very close to the, the tennis world all the time but i i've also looked into before I speak to spoke to you, or before I speak to anybody, I like to look through some things, and I know you've been quoted as saying it, it, there's been times when you're about to quit, and then all of a sudden, out of yeah. nowhere, you've had a great week, and 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 ultimately that this does come down to the management of expectation, and you know when when we have low expectation but high standards, that's almost the the perfect situation. You know, you you can maintain your high standards, but keep this real low expectation of what's coming ahead. You know, I think the bottom line is people end up, I call it the people either, they either give a shit and they give a shit. They, which is, which is the guy that gets unbelievably tight, you know, ultimate professional, but just gets so tight whenever they're playing. You've then got, you've got the one that doesn't give a shit and actually then, doesn't give a shit. Now, from the outside, that looks like a curiosity. You might tell me more on that. And our Benoit pair, and they're dangerous on certain days. You've then got you've then got the worst nightmare is the one that doesn't give a shit and is ill disciplined and doesn't do things right, but then does give a shit when they compete. So so they're ill-disciplined yeah. and they and they get tight. And then you've got, and I, I have to mention federal when i talk about this is they give a shit so they they have high standards but then they have low expectations when they compete and it's so hard to find that balance yeah. you know and 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 i don't is that something that you've you've tried to find because even fr- from the outside you give off that ah oh, i don't really i'm just just playing and you know we'll see we'll see what happens what what's been the journey for, for you on, on that side of things
1: yeah oh I've tried everything and like you said the more I this is if I say this like this my last swing I'm I'm done I just enjoy the enjoy the you know enjoy the matches enjoy everything I play my best and as soon as I you know look at a draw and think oh I should win that and you kind of look to the next round that's when I, I struggle and it happens all that like as much as you try not to do it like it it, subconsciously, it, it, it happened this year in January. So first, the first week of the year, I was playing Melbourne. Um, we lost, and I, I played really poor, really, really poor. And I was pr- already coming into the year, I was struggling a little bit with uh, motivation to play. I was like, oh, when I say motivation to play, motivation to compete. Yeah. And then the second week, I played Sydney ATP, which is pretty strong. And I was playing with Alexi Poprin. And I just remember coming into it, and I told my family, I'm like, oh, probably should come because this could be it, you know? And had the probably played the best tennis I played in a couple of years. I was, um like, for me, I, I played, I made the semi, we made the semis, beat Cabal Farah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Couldn't believe it. I was like, what is going on? And won two matches in one day, which I hadn't done for a long time. And um, so then the Aussie came around and I'm full of confidence and we played. No, no disrespect. we played two wild cards who I know really well, Rinky and Chris Tristan Schoolcate, but I'm playing with Jordan Thompson, who's a very good doubles player himself. I'm confident and I'm just thinking, oh my god, like this, how good is it? Like, look, that sounds bad. Like it's it's a for a grand slam playing a wild wild cards are the singles players, they play main, majority singles, they don't really play much doubles. I'm thinking this is a as as far as what the draws go, this is as good good as I can not as good, but like it's a it's a good first round. Seeing so as you can play Herbert Mahout. And they yeah, they were too good for us. And I start and you know, I first set came out, we won. But then once they got up a break in the second, they got confident. And as tennis players, like doubles is one point here or there. Before you know it, you're a set all and you start freaking out. Because you're like, oh, I should win this. You know, I should we got an off our ranking, and, I'm, you know, I'm 31 and I should, I should know better. But, yeah, I went back to my old, like, the ways that haven't worked and it didn't, yeah, it didn't pan out too good. We, was that, we lost 6-1 in the third or 6-2 in the third. We got killed, and that's, that's the way it goes. And like you said, if you with the expectation thing, I've never won a challenge on clay. And I, I'd done well on a few hardcore tournaments leading third. I was playing with Dom who was probably the best player there, in my opinion. Like, in doubles, he was unbelievable. And a great doubles player, and I'd never played with him, so I felt a bit of pressure playing with him. But I thought, oh, you know what? Like, I played well. Whatever happens, happens. We'll play one match at a time. And he was great with me. Like, he just – he talked it down as well. And we just – one match at a time, just enjoyed ourselves, just held our serve. And then before we knew it, we won the the tournament somehow. And we'll – yeah, like – we we'll get pumped in the final, but end up getting through it.
0: And uh, We were there, but I do think,
1: yeah, that's I remember like, we had the band club up the up the top. It's a bit of fun. We definitely had the support, which I didn't expect in Spain. Yeah, it
0: was it was great. It was it was uh, we absolutely loved. It. I mean, I loved it, but all the all the kids at the academy absolutely loved that. You know, it was a it was a, it was a great a great experience for them as well. But I think on on that is, is that something that. Have you have you ever spoken to it? Have you ever worked with a sports psychologist?
1: I did as a youngster, like because obviously they you get forced, but I didn't buy into it at all. But then I actually for a couple years when I was post working, like helping Nick, I spoke to a like a life coach sort of guy. Yeah. And I kept it really quiet. Only a few people knew about it. Um I won't say his name because he probably doesn't. I don't even know if that's his thing, but I, I speak to him once a week, and I bought in, and I really—it was weird because he was an Aussie guy, and I just bought in. I loved it.
0: And did you stop it? Why, do you still do it, or? uh
1: no. I actually, I probably should go back to it, but there was a point where I was like, um, I, I, you know, you think you've you figured it out, and I thought oh, I probably don't need this, but I, I probably should read that again because yeah, he—it was was great for me. At the time, I was really, really struggling with a, a lot of things. Just I felt, yeah, I was struggling because um, I, I wasn't playing much. I was traveling with Nick and I was – obviously, when I played with Nick, Nick did everything and I kind of relied on him to do – it got to the point where I almost like expect – you know, you expected him to just take over and win doubles matches by himself. And he yep. did – that's the thing he did a lot of the time, but I wasn't expecting it when, when he did do it. So – and then I kind of, that's when I dropped a lot in the rankings and I wasn't practicing. I don't practice much in the best of times, but like I was really not practicing much then. I was just being more of a warmer upper and that was it. And I felt like I needed a change because I, I remember playing in Italy at the Reconati Challenger and I had a, well, the top seeds, we played local wildcards. If I look back, I, they might may have done something, but I honestly remember who they were. Probably the worst, for me at the Totally the worst loss my career. And I remember going back to the hotel and just breaking down thinking I, I can't like I'm done. And that was my first start. I was like, I just like I can't do this. This is too much. Like and then one thing led to another and I kind of met someone uh, luckily it just you know things happen for a reason. I I was in Aptos the Challenger and I, I met the met the guy there. He was actually help helping someone else and he kind of just reached out and and said, oh, if you ever need to talk. And I was like, oh, yeah, I probably should. And then he actually messaged me saying, well, how's things? Like, uh, I hope because we won the challenger there. How's it all going next week? And then from then on, I just, yeah, continued to talk to him. And I so I felt, I felt like he cared a lot. And I think that's the main thing. I, I don't think sports psychologists can be pushed upon people. I think you've got to want to and need it and get to a point where, or not, hopefully it doesn't get to the point where I was, where I was like, just in a, a really bad place mentally, hopefully that, you know, you, and it, it doesn't work for everyone. That's the funny thing. Like, but yeah, I do think if you want it, definitely seek help. For me, it, it, it helped me a lot. It really helped.
0: See, so, I, I look at it a little bit different now. I'm, I'm 10 years on from you and yeah, I'm 10 years on probably similar-ish stories. I think we have, I, I yeah. you, you've been a higher level than me, my, my ranking highest ranking was about 145 doubles but in in terms of it's it's much easier now because i look i look at it from a completely different lens because i'm i'm helping people you know it's not i'm not I, I, I was if i couldn't help myself i mean i stopped playing when i was 25 and i struggled so badly but the the way that i, I look at it now is it's like it's mental fitness so you've got mental fitness and your physical fitness and, yeah. and actually nobody would just not go to the gym and then go, yeah, true. Oh, I'm not physically fit. Well, of course you're not physically fit. Or, 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 or the other one that I would look at is go, well, with any skill, it's like you build like a big pile of snow of that skill so if you at the gym every day you're putting in your physical work you've got a massive pile of snow but if you if you then stop going to the gym the pile of snow melts and and you lose yeah. you lose the skill you lose your fitness and 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 for me i i now on reflection look at it in in a very simple manner i've gone well if if you don't work on your mental fitness on a daily basis then of course you're going to lose your mental some of your mental fitness you know yep. and 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 i don't think it should necessarily be differentiated between physical and mental it's just it's another part of your body isn't it that you that you have to that you have to work on and 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 i think it's the Aussie culture is quite macho. I think the sports culture is quite macho. So it's got going back years. I had Tom Gullickson on the, and Tom Gully is an absolute legend. He was on the podcast and he spoke to me about Jim Lurr, who's one of the, again, who came on the podcast, one of the most famous sports psychologists in the world. And back in his day, it was like, you absolutely he basically had the choice of paying him or telling everyone and spreading the word that he was seeing a sports psychologist. And it's like, well, I'll flip and pay because I'm not going to let anyone know that I've gone to see the shrink Yeah. Yet, yet there's still in our male, in our male world and in the, in the sporting world, I still think there is that stigma attached. Whereas I think in 10, 15 years time, I think we'll find sports like tennis that more and more people will actually travel with, with mental fitness coaches like they do physical fitness coaches.
1: Yeah. I'm, now that you say it like that, it probably makes more sense. Yeah, for sure. The only thing is, I, I think that the player has to buy in. If the, if the player doesn't buy in, then it's like a fitness or a coach. If, same with fitness you and
0: tennis, isn't it? Yeah,
1: exactly. Fitness and coach, same thing. If you don't think the coach is, if you don't rate the coach, then you may as well not have him. Whereas if you think, oh, this guy is going to make you better, but yeah, I think it has to come from the player pu- pushing for it.
0: I want to move into, you know, we're we're in a we're in a world full of um, conflict. We're in a world full of polarized opinions. You know, you've got you know whether it's you know Donald Trump whether obviously the the heartbreaking stuff that's happening right now in Ukraine with Putin you know the world feels quite fractured in terms of opinions yet you strike me as someone from the outside really is and 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 also talking to you today you're you're a bridge you're good at bridging relationships, you know, people blatantly like spending time with you. You know, you, you've traveled with Nick, uh, helping him as a coach. You've traveled with him as a, as a doubles player. I want to, I want to mention a few names and I'd like you to just give us a quick talk through your relationship with that name. Yeah. So Leighton Hewitt. Leighton.
1: Um, I was lucky enough as a 18 year old that I lived 15 minutes away from him. So he would ask, well, Tony Roach was his coach and I knew I've known Roachy for years. And I was so lucky that Leighton said, Oh, can you come train for the preseasons? And I've never seen someone train like that in my life. And for the first few years I just did the trait, the hitting with him. And then I was we got really close and he asked if I would join, if I wanted to join for the fitness session, because I think he we we just got along well. We were really, really close. And It was an eye opener, like at the end of, and this was the tail end of his career, how hard someone can push themselves. I've never seen, or even to this day, like I've done some pre-seasons with some pretty fit blokes, but he would do two fitness sessions a day, two tennis sessions a day. Say he's just going to hit serves and we'd end up, you know, playing two on ones. and, And then he transitioned into a Davis cup role and, I I actually speak to him a lot about advice on what do you think I should do because he knows me well enough to know that I'm a bit different to him as our personalities. We're we're very different, but we get along really well. It's a lot of banter between us. I was lucky enough where he would bring me along to Davis Cups. Originally as a hitting partner, that was when he was captain and he actually played the first tie and... Yeah, I, I still remember him preparing for that was just something else. Yeah, and then from then on, he just became we, – we we're great friends. I, I was lucky enough to play a couple doubles matches before he retired. And, yeah, he helps me out a lot still to this day. I actually spoke to him the other day about I'm at the crossroads of what, what, what should I do, and he's great to talk to. You know, he's, he, he's very easy to talk to for, for me personally. I, I really like him. And yeah, he was—he's like a for for a bit there. He was like a bit of an older brother because I would live with him. I lived with him in the Bahamas and did some training blocks and like I'd even at Wimbledon, I'd stay at his place when he was playing Wimbledon. His the house he'd live in, and it was it was unbelievable experience to see how someone and just the way they uh, number ones think. It's just they're completely different. They I always say he's a he's a different breed. How hard like even now like I see him in the gym just pounding it. I'm like. Mate, when I'm done, I'm not going near the gym. <laughs> Even though I barely do when I play, so like how, how am I going to get the motivation? But I've got so much respect for him as a, as a person and a player. Just as someone who, if anyone wants to see hard work, do a late Hewitt pre-season, mind-blowing.
0: I am one of my first ever international junior experiences. I played a under 14. It's called the under 14 windmill cup in Holland. So it's like a tennis Europe event. And uh, I lost first round to, I don't know who I lost first round to. Um, Won the doubles story of my life. First round (laughs) win the doubles Mm -hmm. And, and, and put into the consolation much to my disgust, that I'm playing in, in a consolation event. Um, but managed to kind of crack on one, kind of two or three matches, maybe, you know, three or four matches in the consolation. And then I've got this little Aussie on the side of the court who is like the consolation matches are happening like the far end of the club, you know, just yeah. like get over there, you know, we're in like the woods. And each match has been like basically raced to four and the next player tanks, basically. And, yeah. and all of a sudden I've got this little Aussie kid who was a year younger than me, is fully in my face. Like, yeah. like, like, I, like I've like i never had anyone in my face before. You know, and he's like, I have the tiger at every point. He went, I have the tiger, I have the tiger. And he's like, he's like all over me. But he wasn't that good. And uh, he obviously wasn't that good because he lost to me on, on a clay court. Um, Decent win. D- yeah, he, despite, <laughs> now that was it. He, he hit a drop shot winner and he went... Touch of Johnny Mac, touch of Johnny Mac. <laughs> like, like he was to the point where, and I feel a little bit embarrassed on this because we actually, as 14, 13, 14-year-olds, 14 we were like, let's go and watch the Aussie kid play doubles. You know, let's have like a bit of a yeah. laugh because he's he's yeah. making such. Now that was 1994. Leighton Hewitt beat Andre Agassi, I believe, in 1990, yeah. 1996. So, yeah. so like... How he went, and, and if anyone's not caught on yet, that was that was Leighton Hewitt. And two years later, he won an ATP event, beating on Dragacy. Like, it was incredible. And, and it blew my mind. And it was the one I ended up, we travelled, and as the Aussies and the Brits stick together a lot, so when we were playing the events, we spent quite a lot of time with Leighton and got on really well with him. But like you said, he, at that age, he was made different. It was... Yeah but the only player that I've ever experienced that with is Andy Murray at that age. And, yeah. and, and Andy was very similar, you know, was very similar in, in just this like unfaltering belief that he was going to be one of the best players in the world. And, and unbelievable. Y- y- can, the,
1: you can have a chat and, you know, and then a debate and there's no chance you'll win the debate. You may, you just quit because you're like, there's no point. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah, yeah. And still like, it's the same things with him now. It's, it's hilarious. But another thing about him is what I noticed is you ask for a tactic from someone. Oh, it literally perfect. I've never seen anyone like dissect a player. Like he can even, I still remember there's, there was a guy that went out to hit with him and I had, he was one of my friends and I said, Oh, uh, do you mind because I asked asking do you know anyone around because I was away I think I was playing the playoff or something and I said oh my mate like this guy's around do you want to come hit with him and we are hitting and then so I went back a couple of days later and I was talking to Leighton and my friend's like oh ask him what he thought of me Asked him what he thought because he's like oh I hit the ball so well and and I'd hit with this guy for years so I knew this guy head to like really well and I said what do you think and he went through it all he's like yeah, very good, this, that. He's like, the guy can't jump. I'm like, what? So I hit a couple of lobs and I couldn't jump. I just, if I I just bring him in and lob him. And I asked the guy, well, do you have a good vertical jump? And he goes, oh, Matt, I was so bad at the vertical jump. And he's like, oh, well, that's what he noticed. And he's like, he lobbed me twice. And I'm like, well, that, well, that is him in a nutshell. Like he, and I still remember, like, when we were hitting at Wimbledon, like, he would look over at the other courts and he'd, I was so fortunate that he would like talk to me about other players, like growing up, like, you know, just like, for example, Kyle Edmund was hitting next to me and he was just telling me about what he thought of Kyle and like how he would play him. I was just crazy. It was things that I wouldn't even think about. He's like, Oh, that's what he would do. And I was like, Oh my God, that's incredible.
0: Amazing. Unbelievable. We could talk about Leighton for hours. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, and I would love to, because like I say, he's a, he's a, he, he was a peer of mine and then he became a, a big hero of mine as well with, uh, yeah. with the career that he had. Um, Bernie Tomich,
1: I saw Bernie last week. Um, everyone, you, okay, in the press, you see this side of Bernie that's, it's not him, you know what I mean? Like he, he, I feel bad saying this, but I don't think he's, I think he's just brought up thinking that if he made, well, I think he, from other people, I'm not going to say who, but he was, he's, he's a such a, he's a loving, like a really nice guy, you know, like he's such a nice, and he's, if he, he doesn't realise some of the things he says is so inappropriate. And I just don't, yeah, without saying, I don't think he's the brightest person I've ever met.
0: Yeah.
1: But on the tennis court, genius, absolute genius. But I, I get along with him really well. We joke around, like he, he was like, he Loved a night out, so he'd always bring me out when I was in London and treated me well. I just, I still remember he'd buy us all a bottle of Dom Perignon, so we're all walking around with Dom Perignon, <laughs> our own bottles. And he, yeah, he's that's what I mean, like he's just such a nice guy. But I just, it's sad to see what's happened and how his career's kind of gone pretty sour. But judging by his Instagram, he's back and training, training pretty hard. And look, I saw him last week and he. He was yelling out, yelling out like oh, he's back, he's in a good place. So, I yeah. hope, hope he, I hope for his, I hope for his sake, but he really does get it together because he was watch and he's he's still like the way he plays, he makes it. He's one of the only I, I said to him, there's only three guys that have made me feel stupid on the court, even though it was a close match, and he was one of them.
0: He's 320 in the world, age 29. He's not a million miles away. You know, we've seen it. We've seen it with a Dan Evans, you know, when he came back from his drug ban, when he's come back from a, a couple of things, he's kind of just like a, like a knife through butter. He's gone through those rankings, you know? So you, you would think that Bernie is a couple of big results away from getting himself back to a decent ranking. You, you think he'll do it? Um, I
1: hope he does. I, I think it's tough though. These days to win challenges week in week out, it's a, it's, it's a big grind, especially the way he, he's done it. Like he's already been up, you know, playing quarterfinals or slams. And I think Dan is a, again, I think he's a bit like late he's a bit of a different breed where the he fact is, that is. he was almost a, a stuff, you guys, I, I'll prove to you all that I can do it and I'll do it quick. Whereas I think Bernie, he seems, he just doesn't seem like he's in a rush. If you know what I mean? And, I'd love to see him do it. I I think he can if he knuckles down and really like, he seemed like he was training hard. When I watched him play Christian Harrison, he lost, but he was competing. If he's competing and gets to a decent fitness level, I think he can crack the top 100 again for sure. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Like everyone will probably say it's how long will it last? You know, like how long will he accept losing second rounds of challenges and I hope for his sake that he really knuckles down like Dan did and just say, I'm gonna get out of here as quick as possible and prove to everyone wrong. Because he can do it. He's a he's a freak, he's a freak of the player.
0: And the one that you've mentioned, you've mentioned him earlier. And it took me a bit actually not to jump in when you mentioned him because I think he is such a fascinating subject, you know, to to talk about. He's I'm a massive fan of, of Nick. You know, I in the juniors I was traveling with Liam, Josh Ward Hibbert, you know, Evan Hoyt, all of those guys that were that were Nick's age, so so knew him all the way through. The juniors brings so much to the game, is is I think possibly the most misunderstood person in tennis yet also is arguably one of the biggest, if not the biggest star in tennis in terms of opening the doors to 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 the sport to to new people we ask people at the at the academy who your favourite player is you can you hear it people are talking and I I, I, you know we we need that in tennis we need these people that are gonna unlock doors and and unlock the sport you're someone who's played doubles with him you're someone who's travelled with him as a coach you know you're someone who who was who was a good friend so talk to us about Nick Kyrgios
1: legend love the guy Um, as you said like he's One of those guys that like completely misunderstood. On the outside, he's this bad boy that everyone thinks is a bad boy, but on the inside, he's just a a soft, like a a little kid. You know, like he's such a good guy. I got so many stories that could, I'll I'll say a couple, but like a that could tell tell you about him as a person. But like he, at the time, I, I was playing decent doubles, and we. I I known him from when he was first coming through, and we we're at that he was we were at AIS because he was training out of Canberra. And the thing that stood out for, with for me with him is his self belief. I've never been with, I've never actually seen someone. Or, and he doesn't actually say it to many people, but when I when I was staying like in rooms with him and stuff, he just believed that he was so much he was going to win every match if he if he wanted to. And I still remember, look, he was playing Acapulco. We just got there from Marseille. He was walking over the courts. He's about to play and he looks at me and goes, Matt, I've got three, three options today. I can go out there, entertain the crowd, lose 7-5, seven, five, seven, 5 one break each set and the crowd will love it. I can go out there and tank or I can win. And I, was like, I looked at him and I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'll win if I want. And I'm like, well, how's that even an option? He's like, I just said, pick one. Which one do you want? And I'm like, well, I'll go three, you know. I said, but promise me you're going to win. He goes, I promise you I'll walk off the court a winner. He come off. He beats him straight, like, obviously tight two sets. And the first thing he says is, told you. <laughs> and it's just, it was mind-blowing. So playing doubles with someone like that, it was, he just believed he was so much better than everyone else. We were playing these unbelievable players and, He's just like, oh, don't worry, I'll, I'll serve us out of trouble, and and would. I mean, he, ser- he serves
0: unbelievable. Huh? Oh, the thing that people
1: don't really talk about is returns. Yeah, he's backhand in particular. See, oh, he, he doesn't miss returns. He makes so, and well, that's one thing I noticed traveling with him was everyone was saying, oh, he's just the shots he hits, but some of the matches he just go into like not miss mode and just grind them down, make every return. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. You couldn't break him because he serves ridiculous. But then I just couldn't believe really how many returns he would make. He would make every return. But that, that's just him as a tennis player. But back to him as a person, one of the touching things I've ever seen with him was he used to do this thing with a, a kid's foundation before the Aussie Open matches. So had all the pressure's on him. And you've been to the Aussie Open, you see every. Every commercials, Nick Kyrgios. Everything's oh, Kyrgios is on say, and this was one of the years where he was he just won Brisbane, so the pressure was on. And he would warm up, warm up with me, and then on the side of the court he'd have a a, a kid that was sick, very very sick. Each day he'd a sick a sick kid would come out, and he'd hit with the kid after, I'd give him a box of rackets, clothes, everything. It was unbelievable. Like before he's about to play, and he'd sit down and talk with him for five ten minutes, and. Didn't want any press seeing it. Just did it by himself on the court. Then he walk around, show him around the grounds. And this is before he's about to play Songer on Centre Court, third round of the Aussie Open, where all everyone's looking at him, putting the pressure on him to win it. Then against Dimitrov the next match. And then I still remember one of them. It was actually a real sad moment because he hit with him, and because that was their their last wish was I want to hit with Nick Kyrgios, or I want to meet Nick Kyrgios. So they end up hitting with him, and. One of them passed away, like maybe six months after. And we got a message from, I can't remember who sent me a message and I forwarded on to Nick and Nick broke down. Like as if he was, oh, I can't believe it. Like, I was like, was, oh my God, like he actually generally really, obviously you care and stuff, but he was really hurt by it. Or, These are the things that people don't see about him. Like he's a real softy and like a really good heart when it comes to kids and people with disability. If you ever see him off walking off a court, if there's anyone there, he'll if there's a kid or a you know like a person in a wheelchair or something like that he he notices he'll always go up and win, lose or draw. He's always the first one to look for that to you know try and make their day. And it for me, like who I, I pride myself on like, you know, trying to be a good person on the road. Like even when you lose sometimes you don't want to do do things and I don't even have that many times where I have to do those sort of things, but he has to do it but he wants to do it. He goes out there and he'll sign autographs for, for these kids and make their days. And it was a different side of him that I I didn't even know until I travelled with him. And he obviously got a bad rap for a few few years. And I think some of the things he did were probably you know I'm the first to admit he probably shouldn't have done them, but he did. But he got he got labeled this bad boy of tennis when he if anything he's the opposite. He's a you know his his mum would travel with us. It was a bit of a it was me, him, and his mum and half the time we'd have two rooms, we'd stay together
2: because mm-hmm. we just,
1: you know, he, he loved having someone around him at all times, hated being alone. It was, it was like, I was like, but yeah, I need my own space sometimes. And he said, Oh, okay, okay. You go there. But then he invest me like two minutes later. Oh, what, what are we doing? When are we doing this? And it was just like, it was just different. Like I didn't, I didn't know that side of him. Cause I only saw the side, him competing, being on the road, playing tournaments. But then even to this day, like, we're always at tournaments catch up. We'll have a few drinks some nights, but I think now with his new girlfriend doesn't actually drink much. So it's really good for him, but um, we'll go out and have dinners and it's the same Nick. Like one thing I've always noticed is he never changed when he became this, you know, he's obviously very popular, one of the stars of tennis. And like you said with Liam, like people think that he forgets about these guys, but then when he sees them on the tour, he goes up and he'll go out of his way to joke around. And it's like juniors again. Yeah. And he always said he, he misses those junior days of like, you know, when they could just get away and do, do stupid stuff and be kids. And I think a lot of people don't see that side to him. And that's why I, I have so much respect for him because he hasn't changed one bit. And a lot, I'm not going to say a lot, but a couple guys, like I'm not going to say names, but they do. They let it a little bit, get to their head a little bit. And they'll ignore you when they've made it. But he's been unbelievable to me. And he's always treated me, amazingly
0: yeah. so i can't i can never say a bad word about him and he's he's seen as the unco the uncoachable one you know actually yeah. I, I actually had nick politieri on on the on the show he was my 100th episode and uh he wasn't giving me a lot of answers to 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 questions I was asking. You know, he's quite yeah. quite a marketeer. Um yeah. and, and and the one kind of off the cuff thing I could get him talking about was was Kyrgios. And I said, come on, like how would you how would you coach him? So so he's he's seen as uncoachable. So how how did that come about? Because back in like two thousand seventeen, how did it come about that you were officially his coach for that period? Um uh it
1: started off I was, I'd stopped playing singles at that time. And I was playing doubles with JP Smith a lot of the time. And I started like looking at other options of what, what I wanted to do. And I, that year, I think it was that year, maybe the year before I'd done a couple of weeks with Bernard Tomek. So Bernie and Nick was supposed to play Davis cup and Leighton was the captain. And that's Leighton loved to have me around the ties because I, I was one of the, one of the guys that got along really well with Nick and Bernie because they, they are different personalities and, they are very probably around the team, but they're they're different. If you know what I mean, like
0: yeah.
1: they you know they stay up late. It's just a different culture to what it's the new new generation. You know what I mean? Like they're just they were different to say like the the grothies and stuff who are true blue Aussies and you know they go to bed early. They really prepare properly and like whereas Nick is, Nick would love playing video games and just di- just different like just different people. So I, I'd have them around. And then we got along really well and his mum, as I was leaving that tie, his mum and him were all at the airport and they just said, this was, so just before that, he'd been booed off the court at losing to Seppi. So he was in a bad place. He went to Boca before the Davis Cup. He didn't hang around and came back. And we pretty much stayed in the same room together, even though I had my own room. We did everything together. And he just said to me, he's like, um, would you any with his mum there would you be interested in playing a couple of weeks of doubles and traveling with me I originally as a friend and he goes you can help me out you can be like you can warm me up like just but just to have someone with me I'm like yeah no worries like let's do it I mean for me I'm getting to play with arguably the best tennis player in the world in a doubles match I'm thinking oh this is heaven just go to Marseille we'll play Marseille and he ends up he lost a song in a tight match but it was one of the best tennis matches I've ever seen that never gets any recognition because it probably wasn't televised. But it was just unbelievable. Quality was a joke. And I just remember sitting there just with goosebumps just thinking, how good is this guy? Like and then after that he just said, would you be would you want to come to Acapulco next week? And I'm like, well I'm as a what? I am not playing. And he goes, no, i no, will pay you blah blah blah. So like, okay. Like I think I was supposed to I was supposed to play with Luke Savile in Japan in in Harbor and i just told him oh i can't go and um, he still brings up luke to this day so i can't <laughs> believe he ditched me but and then i was sitting you know i was posting photos at Acapulco. it's one of the best tournaments ever and it was so much fun whereas it was snowing in japan so he was he was fuming but and then he that's when he beat novak and we just had a good thing going like uh, I, I wouldn't say i coached him i was more about like managing him as a person like and I Accept. I feel like I accepted him for who he was. Like he, oh, yeah. he, he loved and enjoyed. And I tried one thing. I tried to like really talk to him about and like, in, like try to influence him is, is is when you have a good week, reward yourself, enjoy yourself, like be proud of yourself. Because I feel like as tennis players, you're always looking for that next. You know, yeah. you you win a tournament. All right, what's next week? Come on, let's get ready for next week. Rather than sitting back and like reflecting and saying, "Geez, I did pretty well this week." I, I that that was one thing I tried to. Uh, talk to him about, and that was one of the only things. As far as tactics, he was a genius. I was like, you, you do your own thing. It's one thing that he's one. Pe- a lot of people don't really know about him as well is how he can dissect the player like Leighton in a practice of warm up. He'll be hitting with him, and he'll tell me how he's going to play him and what he wants to do. And he watches a lot of film on like last time he plays the guy, and he'll watch a lot of YouTube clips on the guy. And he's very, he's a, his tennis IQ is incredible. Yeah, and from then on, yeah, it was just about trying to trying to keep him on the on the right course, and we had a good run for a bit. And as, but as soon as you thought, oh, yep, we'll figure it out, something would happen, and then you'd have to go back to square one. But no, it was I always say it was the the two most exciting, most fun years of my life. I've never experienced anything like it. Like, and it made me love tennis again. Really love it because the you saw a side I saw a side of it that I'd never seen before. Yeah. You know, you play challenges in the odd tour event here or there, but like, you know, you're, you're getting to meet these meet Will Smith. I'm hitting with Will Smith, who's coming to watch Nick play and meet him in the locker room. These guys who are just like global superstars wanting to meet the guy who you're sharing a room with. It's, it was incredible. I was like, oh my god, how cool is this? But then I also say it was also very stressful because because of the expectations of the, the public. I still remember the Aussie open where we won our first round in doubles and he was in the fourth round. That same one where he was playing Dimitrov in the fourth round and he had the day off, but he had a marathon against Songa, four sets, four hours or three and a half hours. And he was exhausted, but he told me, he's like, Matt, I'll play, I'll play doubles. And I remember thinking, Matt, you, you're crazy. like Because I genuinely thought that was a chance for him to win the Aussie open. And I remember waking up that day, and I got calls from my mum because I was getting abused in the media, like just, oh, why is he playing? He shouldn't play. He should focus on his singles. This guy, if this guy's a friend, what's he doing playing doubles? And I remember thinking, what what do I do? Like, I, yeah, I just I spoke. with my parents like maybe you should think about pulling out, withdrawing, and letting him play? And I spoke to Nick that morning. I still remember calling him, and I said, oh Matt, I'm thinking maybe I maybe I pull out. You know, like. And we can, you, you can have a real good run in singles. And he's like, no, 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 let's play. Like, I really want to play. Like, I love it. So then it's it pressures back on me. Like, I was hoping he'd say, oh yeah, maybe that's a good idea. But he's like, uh, you're here. I've committed to you. And then eventually, I I think I made the call to myself. I called his agent. And I just said, look, I think I should just pull out because it. He's actually. I would hate to be the reason for him not winning he ends up losing that next match, but I would, would have hated being that person that what, what if, what happens if he didn't, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if, if, if I had a played and then he, maybe, maybe you would have won. You never know, but it was over five sets, those two week tournaments. Brutal. It's, it's mental. Yeah. It's draining physically and mentally. And I think even that one match of doubles or seven, six and the third in the 43 degree heat, I did feel a bit bad, but he ended up winning. Thank God. And, that, that was some of the stressful times, that you, decisions that you had to make and obviously some things that he did on the court that he probably shouldn't have. And, you know, you, I cop a little bit of flack from people. because oh, how'd you let him do that? And I'm like, mate, you, <laughs> before we went on the court, he was the happiest person on the planet. It wasn't my fault, like, <laughs> but it, it was, it was a, you know, you were on edge the whole time because he is a very emotional tennis player. But my highlight of my career, I don't, was when we won, we won our quarter final of the Davis Cup and I wasn't even a part of it, but watching how he went through, he made the semis of Miami here and lost the Federer in that epic. Do you remember the, the yeah, yeah. seven, six, six? I was lucky enough that I had the, one Never. of the best seats in the house. Yeah. And he was screaming at me during it, but like in a good way, like he was just, it was one of the, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. Like the, but I still remember how distraught he was after it. Like I've I've seen people cry after a match, but that was, and even I think Roger came, Roger came up to him and gave him a little pat on the shoulder to say, mate, that was one of the most, like yeah, that match was incredible, but Nick was just bawling. And I was like, because he got booed. He was getting booed the whole match from the crowd. It was one of the most one-sided crowds I've ever seen in my life. But he did unbelievable to keep it together. But then he lost 7-6 the third. And it just all, obviously, all the emotion came out. So from then going to win the Davis Cup where he he beat Querrey and Isner, after being there for like two days with jet lag and then watching the opposite, the crowd, just like literally, I still remember the goose, like uh, it, it was one of the only times, you know, you get a bit emotional as like a friend, like, Oh my God. Like
0: yeah,
1: how, how hard like I was exhausted. I don't know how he did it. And it was just incredible. So to see him go from the, that low to that high, it was, it was pretty cool.
0: How did it end? between you um yeah we were talking it was in houston he was
1: struggling with his elbow and that year we we had a few like wild cards we'd been promised a few wild cards and i i still was playing doubles with him at the time and i was still like hovering around i think i started with him at 60 and then i ended up because i missed a few weeks obviously because i was just going just to help him out and then it got to the point where he was injured and we had Committed to say six weeks in a row and then ended up pulling out of all six. So I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I still felt like I was still quite young, like 28, I think. And I thought, oh, I still want to play. And it got to the point where I had to decide whether do I keep playing or go full time with him because I dropped out of a hundred and I didn't really want to go back and play futures and challenges. So I had to decide then and I, I still did weeks here and there, yeah. but then I just said to him like I, I kind of want to give it another crack, and he was su- supportive of me. And he's like, "That's that's good." And at the time, he just hired a fitness trainer, uh, Ash. At the time, yeah, yeah. So he had someone else who was always going to be there. And Ash worked with Evo. You you probably know him really well, and a great guy. He helped him out a lot. And so I kind of handballed it over to him, and it, he had to deal with it then and go go through the highs and lows and. But it was so much fun. I every time I look back, I just smile and just laugh. It was incredible. Some fun times off the court as well.
0: <laughs> no, thanks for sharing all those stories. Honestly, like that's such a treat for the listeners because because they, they just don't get that insight. You know, to get yeah. the insight on on those and 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 the, there's a reason I chose those three names because not that I want you to necessarily talk about this, but obviously we heard about the fracture between the three and their three big personalities in their own right. Yeah. And I think it says so much about you, Reedy, and the the fact that you were able to have those strong relationships. And and this leads me to my last question before I take to the quick fire. It's so clear speaking to you, And it comes out that the empathy that you have and your ability to accept people for who they are. And that's a, that's a massive skill that actually not many people in this world have. I think people tend to live quite selfishly, you know, they, they get irritated very easily. We allow our egos to get in the way. So that for me is probably the number one skill of a tennis coach. You, you throw in the mix your tennis knowledge, your experience, your travel around the world. I think it's very clear to see that tennis coaching is something that you would absolutely fall into and, and do an incredible job. However, that would mean traveling the world for six, eight, nine months a year for the next 10, 15 years. So when the doubles is time to give it up, and I'm sure you've got many years left, what what would be next for Matt Reed?
1: Uh, actually, funny you say that I'm kind of in the, in the process of now looking at options of what's next, like whether it's, I don't know, like I'm not going to put a date on when I'm going to, when it's time to like, you know, put the rackets away as a, as a player. So that, means, so that
0: means you're going to win next week.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> please. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be beautiful. But, um, yeah, I'm in the mix. I, I do want to stay in tennis. I really, the traveling, that's not really the thing that bothered me. It was a, I, yeah, it sounds really bad, but I, I don't mind the travel. I, I really, the one thing I will miss on the tour, and a lot of people say the competing, that's something that I probably won't miss much. I know that's a bad thing, but like that's something that I don't really love the whole competing weekend, day in, day out. I'll miss more of the, the more of just like the the camaraderie, like uh, being on tour with a lot of the guys. Like even we brought up Lloyd. Like Lloyd and I just, it's, I love playing with him because it's more the off court stuff. It's just constantly giving, like giving shit to each other all the time. And, you know, like, I oh, and I generally, I want him to win all the time. But like when he cramped at the Aussie Open, I thought it was, a, you know, I, or even last week, I'm like, oh, make sure you're hydrating up and he'll give me shit about all the stuff. And it's just so much like, that's the thing I'll miss the most is like being around all the boys and like, yeah, and the, the stories that go on on tour and that stuff. So I definitely want to stay in tennis, whether it's traveling as a coach. I'm I'm open. So if anyone's looking, DM me. And um, yeah, but if, if not, um, I yeah, some in some shape, way or form. I'd love. I want to. I'm gonna stay in tennis for sure. Yeah, but I, I feel I feel like my my strengths are help like helping people just what I've been through I can, and what I've seen on tour, I can kind of give to a, like the next sort of generation coming through. And that's what I kind of try and try to do with the, the young Aussie boys. And I'm um, quite close with Alex Demonor and I feel like a, I'm almost like an older brother to him, even though he's had a 10 times better career. I just feel like we bounce off each other, like a, a few ideas and like just little things here and there. He'll ask for advice on what, well, it doesn't have to be tennis more about like, because the, the off court things are the things that, probably affect you more than more than people think is especially being a tennis player whereas like you will we you were talking about earlier it's not like so much so much mental involved if you've got off court problems it's not easy to push them aside.
0: It's all it's all interlinked. You yeah. you are going to be coaching on the tour without any shadow of a doubt. You I mean you are honestly I've I've loved chatting to you Reedy. I've I, you are you someone if I'm honest I've I've always wanted to get to know a little bit better from, from a far, seeing you at tournaments, you know, I, I love how you operate. Uh, you're one hell of a tennis player. Anyone that gets a chance to watch Matt Reed in action, that boy can serve as well. You know, that ball <laughs> moves when, when you're hitting that serve. You know, you're always welcome down in the south of Spain, whether it's to, to, to train to live the life, to, to enjoy it down here as well. I've loved having you on, but I, I, I have to take you through our quick fire round before you go. So are you, are you ready?
1: Yep, ready for it.
0: What does control the controllables mean to you?
1: Um, well, control what you can control. <laughs> Probably professionalism. things that you, you can take care of yourself, like fitness. Um, your grips, your strings, everything, like organisation skills, little details. I mean, you can't obviously control the weather. You can't control your opponent, but you control yourself. You control how you're prepared, all the little one percenters. I- I'd say that.
0: What's your favourite Grand Slam?
1: Oh, tough one. Wimbledon. i got to say Wimbledon. I, like I love the Aussie Open because its home and I'm, I'm at home. But Wimbledon, you just I, – I still get goosebumps. You walk through the grounds and it's just – yeah, there's nothing like it. – it's the pinnacle, you know. You watch it on TV. I used to get up ridiculous o'clock in Australia. I remember watching Rafter lose to um, Ivan Izovich and crying because he lost. I was on that you know, court. Like, Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he's my all-time favourite. I Yeah, I still remember. Yeah, so Wimbledon, for sure Wimbledon.
0: Singles or doubles?
1: Oh, I have to say doubles.
0: Rafa or Roger? Roger. Best doubles player you've ever played against?
1: Against? Oh, the Bryans.
0: Best doubles partner you've ever had?
1: This is a tough one. I've been pretty fortunate, but I've had some pretty good partners. Um, oh, I was talking about this the other day. I think I've played the best servers on two. In the world. So uh, you got to go Leighton or Nick. Or Demon. I can't go past Demon. It's now he's top two. Leighton, Nick or Demon. I played with Ray on once. That was pretty good. Because Leighton was an idol, I was so nervous I couldn't play. So I was terrible. So I'm going to – I'll have to say Nick or Demon.
0: Curious or Rude. They're playing tonight. Who's going to get that done? The popcorn match. Nick in straight sets. This way, by the time this is aired, we'll know the answer to that. And, and yeah, will Nikiros ever win a grand slam? Already has. A, a singles grand slam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not giving him a doubles one. He's too good. He's too good yeah, for that know. to for that to be for that to be it. Will he win a singles he, grand slam? You know, you know what? I from for a while there I thought it was gonna be tough. This year, he's switched on.
1: He's trimmed down. He's training. He's not partying like he used to. Like, I don't know. He says it's the girlfriend effect. And if it is, keep her. He's got to keep her every day. But he is playing some serious ball this year. It's tough. But with Roger Raffer and all that nearing the end. Wimbledon. Wimbledon's the one, I think. Exactly, yeah. Wimbledon's the one. Yeah, I'd say... He's definitely a chance, yeah. If he keeps on this, kind of, this sort of level that he's playing and going at, it, it doesn't matter that he's not playing much because he doesn't need to play much.
0: If he's in the draw,
1: he's a chance.
0: Serve or return? Serve. For, forehand or backhand? <laughs> Is that a serious question? <laughs> forehand. The, a full third in doubles or tiebreak third? Tiebreak.
1: I like the tiebreaks. Even though I don't do well at them, I still like. I think it's better to watch.
0: Medical timeout or not?
1: No medical timeouts.
0: Davis Cup or ATP Cup?
1: I think Davis Cup is pretty much ruined now. The the home and away thing kills it. So I don't know. I I I like the the home and away ties, but other than that, I'd say up to ATP Cup because it's in Australia. That first ATP Cup when Australia played Great Britain, I thought that was one of the most amazing mm. sporting events to watch on TV, I've, especially knowing them all. I think it was incredible. So that's the ATP Cup now.
0: What's one rule change you would have in tennis? No towels. Interesting one. It's not easy to say unique. I've asked that question in 157 podcasts episodes and it's the first you're the first person to say no towels why i I don't i think it's a routine thing i don't think people
1: generally need the towel you know use your shirt use your sweatbands that's what they're there for change your sweatbands don't get me wrong i used to use the towel but like playing doubles i don't use it but playing singles uh yeah the singles players maybe but i just think it's it's a, a waste of time a lot of players stall going to the towel like try and slow the slow the play down and i think it's just a routine thing rather than a a genuine need to wipe the sweat off
0: love it and last question who should our next guest be on control the controllables oh your answer it's in the small print whoever you answer you have to get it's like a passing oh you you, you, you pass the baton on Although I'm still waiting, Marty Fish was on, and Marty Fish said Sergio Garcia. So I'm still waiting for Marty <laughs> to get Sergio. And Wayne Ferreira said Roger Federer. And I'm still waiting for that to happen. But I will be I will be hounding all of these people for who they say. So um who who can you get? Who 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 can you get? You've you've played doubles with some big names there. You know, what's, what's your pull like?
1: Um oh, probably not too good.
0: <laughs> Luke Saville? That's a good one.
1: Yeah, I can, uh, I'll, I can try and get Luke. I think he's got a pretty interesting story as well, being a real country kid and probably one of the nice, nice guys on tour as well and seen a lot. World uh, junior number one. World junior number one, exactly, and now Grand Slam final in doubles. I think he's had a pretty good career, actually a very good career. And for someone who's literally from a, a wine farm in Barmer Berry, which is population about 10, so I think that's pretty cool.
0: Well, the one that the one that I'm definitely gonna, I, I, obviously the listeners would love Nick Kyrgios. I understand yeah. he's not he's I've... not an, he's not an easy one to get. But seen as I beat Leighton Hewitt in the under fourteen Windmill Cup, you know maybe maybe that has earned earned the right for Leighton to to come on. That might open up a story if he wants yeah. to come and speak to his old mate. I have no he's... contact so. Any contact there with Leighton would be amazing as well. Um, but well, Matt, I'll,
1: I'll try and send a message around to the Aussie boys, and see see who's available.
0: Yeah, no, because that'd be awesome.
1: Most, most of them are pretty good blokes, but who knows? Alex Demonar, he lives in Maine, so. He's he a
0: good does. one. Yeah, another another great yeah. one. Well, I'll, I'll be I'll be leaning on you, Reedy, but thank you. No on worries. Behalf, on behalf of everyone that's going to listen to this, a big big thank you. You were brilliant, mate. You know, keep keep enjoying the ride as long as long as it goes. And I know you've got a lot to offer. You know, wh- whoever it is that's lucky enough to have you in their corner, so top man. Thank you.
1: Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me, and I'll talk to you later.
0: So they do say that that the first rule of coaching is know your player and since we had that conversation Nick Kyrgios beat Casper Rood in straight sets so Matt Reed uh, clearly knows Nick Kyrgios I, I hope you all I, I enjoyed those stories and, and Vicky this is a one that I'm sure you loved that the, the storyteller
2: yeah, I say this every time. I love all the stories. I love hearing all the ins and outs all the insights that we wouldn't normally hear, even though we get so much more information than we used to on Twitter, on Instagram, on podcasts. But I love hearing about the relationships between the players and what goes on in their in their day-to-day life. Loved hearing about Leighton Hewitt. You've come across Leighton in your playing days and we all have seen like how intense he is in, uh, when he used to play. But it was fascinating hearing about what he was like off court as well.
0: Yeah, it is, and Leighton it obviously took me back. It I, I like to be able to tell that story, so he he gave me a, <laughs> a seamless link in to be able to show off about a, a win as a fourteen year old over a thirteen year old. I knew
2: I knew you'd be all over that. <laughs>
0: I need to maybe get over myself twenty seven years on, but, <laughs> but but I think yeah, the the fact that. <laughs> For me, the, my big takeaway, actually, and, and, and actually anyone gets to see Matt Reed play tennis. He's one hell of a tennis player. And I think sometimes we forget that. 183 in the world in singles. You know, so he's, he's a serious player. He honestly serves out of a tree. His serve is, you know, regular 135 mile an hour serve. You know, he can seriously, seriously play. Yet... His ability, he'll almost be his tennis life is almost defined by the relationships that he's that he's had, and it's been high profile. You know, Leighton Hewitt, I think, is a little bit of a marmite character. You know, you love him or you hate him, and you tend to be on team Hewitt or more on the side of your Tomiches, your your Kyrios's in terms of the characters, and I think the fact that he's so close to all three of them. And and is you know the almost the go to he's he's the go to for Leighton Hewitt Leighton Hewitt always brings him into the Davis Cup team he's always been around being a practice partner he's played doubles made the final of of junior Wimbledon with Bernie Tomic and still has a strong relationship and 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 at one point was almost Nick Kyrgios couldn't couldn't function without having Matt Reed next to him and you know that couple of year period that he traveled with him you know Matt will downplay it but he obviously had a, a massive massive impact on Nick Kyrgios and his career as well and one thing I loved and I think as human beings we're not very good at this it's certainly something that I'm not very good at is is accepting people for who they are and, and not just wanting people to to act in the way that we act and we feel that a person should act and 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 that for me seems like a massive massive positive trait that matt has and and something that i'm sure is gonna is gonna make him into a into a very good coach probably more suited for more of that bad boy image because they, they're never going to change. Nick Kyrgios is never going to change. But can he be managed in the way that he feels good and about, being, about being who he is and not having someone judging him all the time? And I think it's a, it's a really interesting one.
2: Well, you know, he spent 20 minutes, I think probably maybe a little more talking about Kyrgios, 20 minutes of the the show. You know, he said, didn't he, it was the most exciting period of his of his career so far and working with him to the detriment of his own career, you know, putting that on the sidelines. But what an amazing experience. And I think not just his personality, but all these experiences that he's had will be huge when he, I mean, we're gonna say he is gonna move into coaching. He, He talked about it, you know, that does seem to be the obvious step for him, but that can only be a massive benefit.
0: Well it's the it's my my second point, I think from from that episode and it's this this sense of belonging. I know we had quite a big chat about it about the juniors. you know he's a big advocate of of the juniors as as I am and and one of the big reasons being as we talked about it during the episode, that, that that feeling like you belong in the locker room, that looking around, seeing the friendly faces, being on nickname terms with the players, and, and having spent that time on the tour, someone of 60, 80 in the world in doubles, maybe wouldn't be around at the business end of Grand Slams and ATP 500s and 1000s, but because he's experienced that with Nick, because he's experienced the Davis Cup, with his relationship with Leighton, then he has a sense of belonging, I'm sure, at the top end of the game. You know, people will know him, will know Matt Reed, know who he is. But it brings me on to quite an interesting topic, And and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Vicky, but it almost feels, for his career, he wants to have a reason why he wasn't top 20 top 10 in the world as a as a doubles player as maybe why he wasn't the top 100 player and I do just wonder sometimes that sort of character it's he seems more comfortable helping other people and again it's something I can completely relate to when when I was a player was that because I had a fear of failure was that because I didn't quite want to put it all out there and still not get there, you know, I felt much more comfortable having someone to the side of the court with me, um, playing playing doubles, I felt much more comfortable as a coach, and, and I, I think it's quite an interesting character trait, because he's almost fallen into the role of The guy who doesn't really go to the gym, albeit he had just at the start of that podcast. The guy who likes his nights out. The guy who maybe doesn't take his tennis so seriously. And and I do just wonder if that's been a little bit of a protection of him not quite having the confidence to put his full tennis game out there.
2: I mean, that's something I guess he will know once he stops and he's got a few years kind of experience after looking back I mean I think regardless of whether he'll look back and think mm, did I really reach my own potential he's it sounds like he's had a hell of a ride along the <laughs> along the way
0: yeah and it goes into success measures that's not me judging that and and I, as I say I, I was very similar I feel like I can relate to that and as and we talk about it all the time on this podcast, it's not that the only success measure is not having ranking of X, Y, or Z. It's, it's about enjoying the experience. So who, who, who am I to knock Matt Reed? No, I, and I'm, I'm not doing that at all. He's had an incredible career but he's also more than that. He's clearly loves the experience. He loves the lifestyle. So I, I completely tip my hat. Just from a psychology point of view, I think it's quite an interesting one. I think it's something that a lot of players can relate to, you know, and certainly ex-players and coaches can relate to when, when we look back on our careers. Did we truly want to put it all out there? did we hold a little bit back so we could just say, well, actually I could have done this if it wasn't for that, that, and that. And and that certainly came up a little bit because it's that role play. It's almost like he's got the role to play of being that type of person. But all of that being said, maybe then you lose his absolute qualities. And and I think he's a really unique person to be able to, to mold himself into having these relationships with with some pretty big egos you know and the fact that everyone likes him everyone wants to spend time with him and he helps in enhancing so many other people's lives well done Matt Reed and and good luck good luck with the rest of your playing career and good luck with the rest of your your career whichever direction you take it in
2: did you find out if he was coming back to Marbella for the challenger?
0: Not Well, we'll see. I mean, he, he was talking. Again, he was talking as if it was very close to him stopping playing tennis. You know, and I think that's that's something. He seems to be living life week to week. Um, you know, maybe he'll go and now win a couple of tournaments because he's starting to think uh, about, <laughs> about hanging the rackets up again. But it'd be great to see you. If you are still listening at this point, Matt, get yourself down to the academy we'd, we'd love to have you and hear your stories but also see that incredible tennis that you have on the court as well
2: and we've got a slightly different one for you next week I know Dan you've been wanting to speak to this guest for a long time now but we're hearing from Dave Pilgrim from Skybet or Stato Dave as he is more well known and he's been in the betting industry for more than 20 years now he's going to be talking to us all about gambling in tennis
0: I'm excited about this one. I think when we set about this podcast, it was about bringing all of the different lenses of the sport. And and I think we'd be remiss to, to not get involved in this side of it. You know, gambling has many different aspects. It's linked to tennis in so many ways. Yes, we look at the negatives of it and the match fixing and the court siding. And, you know, we look at all of these different bits, but but the one, one, one side that we, we don't often talk about is where does the money come from at the at the lower ends of the game? You know, how do we get the sport out there and grow the sport? And, and the reality is... The gambling platform is massive, it's monumental in in the world of sport, but certainly it is in tennis, and I believe now it's in the top three or four sports for, for having the most money put down on it. A few years ago, they brought it in, they brought gambling in at the lower ends of the game, 15Ks, 25Ks, and I just thought we have to get this subject. It's been tough getting anybody talking about it and fair play to Dave and to Skybet because they've signed it all off. He's coming on to the show. I'm sure we're going to have a fantastic conversation, really dig deep into what it means for for the sport of tennis, but also what it means for the gambling industry and how they're going to work together in the future. So watch out for that one next Tuesday. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables.